I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to a special episode of We Made People. Occasionally, we will drop bonus episodes. Bonus episodes come from things like sermon series that I'm doing at my church, or Q&As that Emily and I do on Twitter Spaces. The main focus of season one of We Made People is framed around each of the kids God has blessed us with. Bonus episodes don't tell that story, but they do expand on many of the ideas that come up in each of those episodes. For example, what I'm sharing with you this week is four sermons that I've preached at East River Church that cover topics related to family, parenting, and children. I think these episodes will be helpful as you consider building your first-generation Christian household. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a great comfort to us in a world full of many challenges, namely raising up godly children that fear you. Bless this time. May we walk away strengthened, convicted, and hopeful. In your son's name, amen. One of the most popular American artists of all time is uh, Norman Rockwell. Even if you don't know the name, there is no way you've not seen at least one of his uh, paintings. He painted over 300 covers uh, for a weekly newspaper, the Saturday Evening Post, and they were often very heartwarming pictures that caught everyday American life, and he kind of had a focus on you know small-town values and traditions, and uh, that's why he was popular. Uh, he painted pictures of the good life, of the life... Uh, that Americans, quality Americans, longed for. Some say he was overly sentimental and nostalgic, maybe, but little of that goes a long way in a cynical world like ours. Now, songs, they paint pictures with words. And Psalm 127 and 128 give us pictures of the household blessed by God. Stuart Perrone says, they form two bright companion pictures of social and domestic life, and of the happiness of a household, which trained in the fear of God, is blessed by his providence. So you can reject Rockwell as a kitschy artist who painted idealistic pictures that play to people's sentimental longings. I wouldn't, but you can. But you can't reject the picture painted by God in this psalm. This is what you should long for. This is the good life, the quality life, the blessed household. Now, the ESV says it's a psalm of Solomon, and it does have a sort of proverbial feel to how it's constructed. However, Matthew Henry thinks it's a psalm for Solomon, written by his father David. And he believes David dedicated this psalm to his son. Henry writes, He having a house to build, a city to keep, and a seed to raise up to his father, David directs him to look up to God, to depend upon his providence, without which all his wisdom, care, and industry would not serve. Solomon was cried up for a wise man and would be apt to lean on his own understanding and forecast. Therefore, his father teaches him to look higher and to take God along with him in his undertakings. 
So whether or not it was David or Solomon that wrote this, this is the overarching theme of the psalm, trust in the providence and goodness of God. The psalm's structure is pretty obvious. It's broken into uh, two major sections, verse 1 and 2, with a call to trust in providence. In verse 3 through 5, they extol the blessing of children. Some commentators think there is an abruptness between these two sections, as if they randomly turn from one subject to another. And I disagree. I think they fit together perfectly. Perone, again, he says, the first part is engaged with the home and the city, The second part, with the children who are the strength and joy of the home and with the men who are the crown and defense of the city. In both, in our home life, in our civic life, we are wholly dependent on the providence and bounty of God. Amen? So let's take a closer look at this psalm. Let's look at verse 1, the first half. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Scripture has a much more robust idea in mind when it talks about building a house. It doesn't refer to a mere structure in which you live, though that is definitely part of it. When you build a house, you build a home, a family, and a legacy. It includes all that. And Alistair Roberts, who's a theologian that I I find helpful, he explains it this way. The household is bound up with the family. It's something that develops over time. It's a living organism. And it develops through stages. So a couple gets together, and they form a life together. They build a world around themselves. They bear children that they welcome into that world. And they accumulate possessions and influence within the world. In all these ways, that's the household growing. The household is the realm that is created around the family, the orbit that it creates around itself uh, through the gravity it asserts upon its surroundings. So the household, in its fullest expression, is a productive output of the covenant love of marriage. It's what marriages bring into the world. I'd argue that it is the earthly purpose of marriage, the chief purpose of marriage here on earth. There are three historic purposes of marriage, if you look through old writings, um, and they are helpful companionship, protection against sexual immorality, and having godly children. And I don't disagree with those. I just think they all work together to produce a household. They're nestled inside that, that greater purpose. I mean, one reason you need a companion in this life isn't just because you're lonely, because it's, it's hard work. It's hard work to build a home. You can build a household as a single person, but it's marriage that throws household building into hyperspeed. It's no longer one person, but two, and two are better than one. In marriage, you have the bringing together the masculine and feminine virtues of all mankind are in a special way. It creates a nursery, a school, a proving ground for the next generation. So culture, it begins and emanates from the household. There's much talk of culture war all that time. People want to have culture war that starts at the top and works its way down. That's not how culture works. Now, that, not that there isn't an aspect to that. We do see godly kings repent right? in, in Scripture and nations follow them. So there is something to that. But culture begins in the home because society is a collection of households. So it starts with the most basic building block. The home is where the next generation is shaped and trained until they leave their father and mother and join themselves to another marriage and start the whole process all over again. So building a house is a big work. It's the work of a lifetime. 
But it's another thing to see the work of a lifetime, um, the work of building a house come collapsing down. Oh, excuse me. It's one thing to see the work of an evening or a week or even a year come to nothing. But it's another thing altogether to see the work of a lifetime, the work of building a house come collapsing down into a pile of rubble and houses do fall. Such was the case with Eli in 1 Samuel. Eli was a high priest of Israel and served at the sanctuary in Silo. He had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas, who were also priests. They were wicked men. They disregarded the priestly duties and engaged in all sorts of immoral behavior. And it repeatedly says God was displeased. So Eli's tenure as a high priest came to an end when he received a prophecy from a man of God. And that man of God told him that uh, his whole house was going to fall down because of his wickedness. And it was later fulfilled in a battle when the Philistines uh, killed both Hophni and Phinehas, and the Ark of the Covenant was uh, captured. And when Eli heard the news, he fell backwards in the sea, broke his neck, and died. And then the daughter, his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, then died in childbirth upon hearing the loss of the Ark. So Eli built a house, but God didn't build the house of Eli. Therefore, he labored in vain, and it came to nothing. So as we seek to build a home, we must do it prayerfully, looking for the blessing of God. This big work that we are called to isn't something that we can do in our own power. The psalmist says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The city of Jericho had watchmen, and it fell all the same. Now, that's not an argument against watchmen. It's good to take protective measures in cities and homes. There's nothing wrong with seatbelts, life insurance, or internet filters. Those are good precautions. But you can do all the right things, and without the blessing of God, it will still come to nothing. We are utterly dependent upon him. Hence, the psalmist continues, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Many work from worry and not rest. Commenting on this verse, Matthew Henry says, Usually those that rise early do not care for sitting up late, nor can those that sit up late easily persuade themselves to rise early. But there are some so hot upon the world that they will do both and will rob their sleep to pay their cares. And they have as little comfort in their meals as in their rests. They eat the bread of sorrows. It's good to work hard. Building a house, raising a family, leaving an inheritance, it takes hard work. And sometimes you do have to wake up extra early or stay up very late. But we mustn't do it from a place of fear and worry. That's what he's calling out here. We must trust in the goodness of God. That's why Matthew 6, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's okay to plan, but life is lived one day at a time. If you seek to build the kingdom in the day to day, day, God is faithful to build your house. He will bless you. Now, I love that this is all kind of a preface before addressing... um, children. Uh, So Psalm 127 uh, addresses anxiety and commends trusting the Lord and so much parenting methodology. Everything around the conversation of parenting is driven by fear and trying to find the exact right way that removes the need for faith. I'll go off 
script here. This always gets me in trouble. Um, but I'll tell you, if you want to split a church, it, it's the women that split churches a lot of times. They really do. And it's over stupid things, like whether you breastfeed on demand or on schedule. There's a big controversy in some. Whether you do home birth or hospital birth, right? Whether you use this exact method or that exact method. And everyone gets upset because everyone's sensitive about their children, right? Very sensitive about that. And those are hot issues. And so as we talk about these things, I just say be a grown-up and allow people to disagree on some of these things. We have to work really hard at recovering the principles and allowing people uh, some grace and freedom and liberty to figure out how to apply those in their particular situations. And I think why all of us really just want to plan. Does someone give me the template, the blueprint, the follow? And that, w- that way we know everything will be okay. And I have seen families that have followed the blueprint, the template, uh, faithfully. And, and some of their children grow up to be apostate. And I have shared that before with other people and say, well, they didn't homeschool. No, they did homeschool. Well, they didn't catechize. They did catechize. Well, they probably went to a liberal church. No, it's a really good church. Uh, you know, well, maybe they, they didn't feed them all organic food. <laughs> Let's just keep going. Like, they didn't do it. And why they say that is they're freaking out. Because they really have put their trust in this program of this exact way. And, and, and they think that will deliver to them the guarantee, but there is no way that you can live life without faith. We have to trust the Lord to move in the hearts of our children. That isn't, doesn't mean we deny means, right? Not all methodology is equal. That's not what I'm saying. There are better and worse ways to do a lot of things, and that includes parenting. But I think one reason we get so divisive, and the people that are most divisive, you know, the, the experts on parenting, they're always the same people. It's some, some crunchy chick with two kids that are like four and two, right? Um, what do you know? Shut up, right? You're going to change your views to some degree. And that's why churches need to be intergenerational. We need some people that are older, that have seen things, that can tell us when we're being too hard and tell us when we're being too soft and to give us wisdom and help us walk through these things, but man, online nowadays, that the number of fools purporting to be experts is exponential, right? And I look for people, and you look at their kids, and they're well-adjusted, and say, teach me, okay? Show me your ways. Let me, let me know. And that, that needs to be our attitude as we come to these things. Now, what do we worry about more than our children? We worry about their health, right? their education, their discipline, their vocational aspirations, their marriage prospects, and so forth. It's so crazy as you age as a parent, the new worries you discover, things that you never thought about. You know when you're a, a grown man, this is how you know you're a grown man, when you see a pretty godly girl and you think, that would make a good daughter-in-law. <laughs> That's when you've crossed over into adulthood. Where right? you just like, you just rooting for your sons and daughters to find someone. It's like a brand new part of life. Now, our culture teaches us that children are a burden, and that is most certainly true if you trust in your own labors to raise them. They will undoubtedly rob you of sleep and cause you to chew the bread of anxious toil. But if the Lord builds the house, they are a blessing. Hence, the psalmist says, behold, 
Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Heritage here means inheritance or a possession. In other words, children are wealth. They are a treasure. There's something to, to seek, pursue, and go after. This was easier to see once upon a time. Without children, it was difficult to get by in an agrarian society. Many hands make the work light, few hands make it heavy, and there's less you can accomplish. You must plant smaller fields, and consequently, you reap a smaller harvest. With a large family, uh, you can do much more. So people saw it as a blessing back then, and it was easy to see it. Children are a reward. They are a blessed gift from God. Listen to Exodus chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one who is named Shifra and the other Puah, when you see, or when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on birth stools, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. All throughout Scripture, fruitfulness that comes from fertility is celebrated and seen as a blessing. Right? How did God bless them? He gave them families. He blessed them with children, blessed them with marriage, blessed them with a household. Children over and over again are presented as a blessing. Fruitfulness over and over again is seen as a good thing. I challenge you to find one negative example of fruitfulness in Scripture. You're not going to find it. It's barrenness or infertility that's negatively looked upon. Barrenness is repeatedly depicted as a bad thing. For example... Proverbs 30, 15 through 16 reads, There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the earth that's never satisfied with water, and fire that never say enough. So the barren womb is an unsatisfied womb because it cannot fulfill its purpose. It isn't uh, a state to be celebrated. And you do see these on magazine covers, people celebrating the, the single life, the life without children, and of course, they're young. But I have done ministry in nursing homes. And I have seen people that are very lonely. And it's easy to, to celebrate that time right now. But when your legs stop working, when you're sick, when you're losing your mind, who will be there to care for you? Who will think about you? The pain of barrenness will drive women to take extreme tactics in pursuit of satisfaction. Sarai says, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. I find that to not be a thing that <laughs> I would think a woman would recommend. But she wanted children. In Genesis 30, Rachel says, Give me children or else I die. She then proposes a similar solution as Sarai did. And Rebecca and Hannah they serve as a more positive example as their wombs were open on account of prayer. They, they asked God and God blessed them, Hannah with a son, Samuel. Nonetheless, all these women greatly mourned 
their barrenness. In each of these situations, God had mercy on these women by granting them fruitfulness. Now, we are increasingly pressured to normalize barrenness so that the childish can avoid, or childless, excuse me, can avoid grief. Every Mother's Day, we are chided to be sensitive to those who have miscarried uh, or cannot conceive. Now, why? Because barrenness is painful. Because childlessness is missing out on a special blessing. Children are a normal part of marriage, like color is a normal part of eyesight. Some people are born colorblind. Some couples are unable to conceive. This wasn't God's original design. It is a result of the fall, which has brought death and dysfunction into the world. In a perfect world, everyone sees colors, and every couple can conceive. But we live in a world in which death has entered. Colorblind people are missing out. There is a reduced ability to enjoy the full spectrum of colors in one way or another. Likewise, infertile couples are missing out. They have a reduced ability, biologically speaking, to enjoy one of the greatest blessings of their one flesh union. So childness, like colorblindness, means missing out on some of the blessings of creation. And, and I know in a church, with as many kids as we have here, we have so many kids, and it's wonderful. But I know for those of you that uh, are maybe started having kids later in life or have not been unable to have uh, children, uh, that th- this feeling can uh, of pain can be more pronounced. Sometimes you can mistake it as, as judgment from others. I don't think that's the spirit of our church. I hope not. But you need to remember that childlessness doesn't invalidate your personhood or prevent your salvation or eradicate your ability to serve God with gladness. That's nonsense. It may be that God in his wisdom refused to open the womb of some couple. Don't fret not, you know. A day is coming where everyone will see color and the earth will be fully populated with worshipers of the Most High. You can participate in fulfilling this by making disciples. Be fathers and mothers to those in the church. I appreciate your help. Perhaps consider adoption. Either way, channel that drive to build a fruitful household towards whatever good you can. God will use you. God will bless you. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. This verse makes it clear that the psalmist has grown children in mind. And it's very important to how you apply this psalm. Perone writes, These sons of a man's youth are particularly mentioned because they would naturally grow up to be a support and protection to their father in old age when he would most need their support. This begs the question, are children always a blessing? Were the sons of Eli a blessing? Was Absalom a blessing to David? Was Judas a blessing? No. Children can be a source of bitterness, shame, and pain. Proverbs 19.26, He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. Proverbs 28.7, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Proverbs 29.15, The rod and reproof gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. It's a child that grows up into a godly man or a woman that's a blessing. They are the arrows, right? Every child God gives you has that potential. 
So children are a blessing. We welcome them. And they're, they're great. But this is talking about, has a bigger picture in mind. And sometimes people use this to justify having as many kids as they can with no eye towards the final, the, the moment when you've taken a child and raised them into adults. So it says, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I do not see a moral obligation in Scripture to have as many kids as you biologically can. I just don't see it. I think it is, I see a principle of fruitfulness, right? That matters. And I am willing to take some positions on contraceptives here. I will tell you, you look at church history, they're going to be against almost every form, right? Every, all the way up to the Lambeth Conference in 1930. Like, so Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Protestants, they all were on the same page there. And that's a, a divisive issue. So here's the position I'm willing to take from the pulpit. You may not do anything that ends the life of a child. So anything that prevents the implantation of a fertilized egg, that's a person, a baby, would be the equivalent of an abortion. That's what that would be. Now, there's been a major move to redefine when life begins. Life begins at conception, not at implantation. And there's many forms of uh, contraceptive that uh, basically disrupt the uterine wall and prevent the egg from planting in there so it can't turn in, it can't mature into a human. And those things would be at odds with Scripture. Now, there's all sorts of other questions here. Um, one, uh, vasectomies have gotten more and more popular these days. I personally wouldn't do it, but I think that really is something for a couple to work out. I would urge both husband and wife to not take any steps without talking to each other. She has authority over your body. You have authority over her body. That's something as a couple you should make a decision on. Right, And I think people can get really hot and heavy and take these hard stands. But will you be there to help them raise their children? And I just think, well, let me go on, okay? Here's what I do see in Scripture. I see a call to treasure children. And I see emphasis on discipling them into godly adults. Those two things have to be held together. Children are good. Diminishing children, denigrating children, that is evil. It should never be on the lips of, of Christians. You should love children, but you must possess an attitude that understands the gravity and, and the heaviness that, that, of the work that God gives you when he blesses you with a child. This is a lot of work. When they're little, they actually don't cost that much money when they're little, especially if you're really crafty in how you do baby showers. Just got to think ahead. That's why I like to know whether we're having a boy or a girl. So, like, what do we need in our house? You know? Oh, sorry, son, you're going to be sleeping in a pink crib. But, uh, I saw, <laughs> anyway. Um, but as they get older, children, it's amazing how two people can create so many different personalities, so many different problems. So much of parenting is like whack-a-mole. Like you get this kid in a good place, and then this, uh, this one starts acting like a little nut job. And you're like, okay, then you get that one right. And then this one over here. And it's, it's hard. And you, it is a hard work that God's called us to. And there's a sort of, um, 
in, in reacting against our godless society that hates children, a society, a culture of death, there's a sort of immature reaction that removes the weightiness of children. But they are souls. They are eternal souls. Every person that's ever brought into this world will exist forever. We are a ray. We have a point at which we start, but we never end. And they'll have an eternal destiny somewhere. I've seen huge homeschool families blow apart late in life. Huge. More than I ever imagined I would. Now, me and my wife, we have had eight kids. And uh, so I, that's on the bigger side of, of families, right? And we've come from backgrounds where there's that sort of quiverful push to have as many kids as you can. And I've seen people start well, and then one spouse leaves, and this whole family is thrown in a disarray. And I've seen their children walk away from the Lord, entire families that homeschooled and went to all the conferences and learned to contradance and do all the things that those sort of homes do. I've seen their children walk away from the Lord. And the size of your family isn't a measure of righteousness. Goliath had a lot of brothers. And Abraham and Sarah only had one son. So I do think we need to recapture an attitude that sees fruitfulness and children as a blessing. A godly big family is a big blessing. But there are many things that we need to reclaim that's been lost. For example, when Scripture talks about the family, it doesn't have the nuclear family in mind. That is not what Scripture has in mind. It has the extended family, a family that includes grandma and grandpa, uncles and aunts, cousins, and so forth. It is very difficult to have a large family without financial resources. But all I, I'll tell you what, it's even more difficult to not have the resources of extended family. I mean, my mom was starting to watch the kids. Emily and I, our date nights, was like, we're going to go downstairs and watch American Pickers or something together. Um, but my, having my mom move here and be able to watch my kids a couple of nights a month, it was, it was awesome. It, it really gives a chance to, um, to relax. But beyond that, the wisdom, the help, the, the built-in friendships with, with your cousins or whatever, that's, that, that's what it has in mind. And we've lost that as a culture for various reasons. I mean, how many of you have loved ones that are scattered all over this country? That's become, that's become normal. And it's very difficult to have a ton of kids and do it all by yourself. And we have this weird tendency to reclaim one truth and make it the ordering principle to which all other truths must uh, bow down. So yes, is scripture uh, favor fruitfulness? Absolutely. But there are other commands in scripture, and these things must be held together in tension. You must raise the kids up to fear the Lord. So yes, fruitfulness is good. If you can bring in the harvest, a quiver full of broken and bent arrows is not a blessing. He shall not be put ashamed, the psalmist says, when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So the gate here could either be people coming to attack the city, or it could be referring to some sort of dispute, because the gate is the place where judgment uh, would be made on court cases. Matthew Henry says, he that has numerous children 
may boldly speak with his enemy in the gate in judgment. In battle, he needs not fear, having so many good seconds, so zealous, so faithful in the vigor of youth. Again, this boldness only exists if your children are zealous and faithful. Nothing silences Christians like wayward and apostate children. It should silence pastors. It's probably the one that it doesn't silence. How many pastors do we see who have kids uh, in open rebellion in their household, and yet they still preach every week and tell people how to manage their household, and their own household is in disarray? But it does silence us when we have children that walked away. It's easy to be bold when they're small, but will you be bold when they're old? It's easy, relatively speaking, to have lots of children. It is hard to raise them into godly adults. One of the greatest scandals of modern Christianity is that we've lost so many of our children. It's so funny. I saw, um, I saw this documentary that claims it's because we have age-based based, um, education. It's the creation of youth groups. And, uh, and, and that's rooted in evolutionary concepts. Uh, you know, so that's the voyage of the Beagle, 1859. We've been having age-based discipleship throughout church history. Like the reformers did it. They had catechism classes and all that. I don't think it's, and so what happens, if we get rid of youth groups, our kids are going to be okay, right? We don't do youth groups, we'll be fine. That's another one of those like promises that people like hang their hat on. And no, the problem is, is that we have lost a a godly home culture. That's That's probably the key one. And we've lost it across society. And so what happens is our children some of us were raised up at a time where it was neutral to be a Christian. It wasn't like a bad thing, you know. It may even have been a good thing if you're old enough. But our kids are being uh, raised in a time where the culture actively hates them, right? To be a Christian is to be a bad person. It's to not love your neighbor. You're to be a, you're a bigot and you hate. You just, want, you just want to stone homosexuals, don't you? This is like constantly shooting at them through every streaming service. And, and it's just constant. The culture uh, is so intense. And you can only outbreed. I'll hear people say this. We'll outbreed the non-Christians because they're not having enough kids. Our, our birth rate, I think, is 1.74. And the replacement rate is 2.1, something like that. And so we are in a demographic downward spiral already here in the West. Um, but if you raise your children in such a way uh, that you lose them the mainstream culture, you're just feeding the system. You're just feeding it to them. A fruitful home without a godly culture will not grow the church. It will not. It will only multiply the number of participants in the worldly culture. So it's not enough to bear fruit. You also have to bring in the harvest. You've got to bring it in. You don't want it to see it rot on the tree. Now, do you feel the burden of this responsibility? It's heavy. Maybe you understand why the psalmist starts the psalm the way he does. The elders here feel it. That's one reason we're doing this series, to try to aid and help and encourage the work. It's one reason that we encourage you to catechize your kids so they know the truth of Scripture. But you have to parent from rest. If you're going to do something on parenting, I think this is where you have to start. 
Because uh, God will build the house of those who love him. He does give his beloved rest. He gives them sleep. And we, we trust that through providentially, as we fear God, that he will work through our faithfulness. That's what Proverbs says. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's a proverb. It's a generality. It is generally true. So what you do is you give yourself to this glorious work of, of fruitfulness, of raising up the next generation of the church, the future. You do it in faith, and you trust the Lord, and you rest in him. So trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this psalm. Help us to not labor in vain. Help us to rest in you. I pray as we do have this rest, this, this light burden, this easy yoke, that it would strengthen us to give ourselves to your commands, that we would tell of your faithfulness, uh, the faithfulness to the patriarchs, the faithfulness to the apostles in the Acts, your faithfulness in the church to the generation, and your faithfulness to us, to our children, that we would tell them how you've delivered us from sin and you filled our heart with joy and gratitude, with a desire for holiness. We pray as we sin in our households that we would repent to our spouses, to our children, and that they would see that we depend on your gospel and we believe in your cross. We pray you would bless us with homes with godly culture, a culture where uh, prayer is common and scripture is spoken as if it is just the way of life, God. God, protect our children from this godless culture. Protect them from the lies of the enemy. I pray you would give them uh, spines made of steel, uh, discerning eyes that see sin as a temporary pleasure that ends in infinite pain, God. Lord, do bless us. Bless us with children. Help us to trust you in your providence, whether you give us one, ten, or for whatever reason, none. We know you work all things out to good for those that are called according to your purpose. And if there, you are for us, who can be against us? So we pray this in the name of your son with confidence. Amen. Amen.